Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you all. Um, If you would, open up your Bibles and join with me in the Gospel of Mark. And if you don't have a Bible with you, please grab one. Uh, We'll be looking at a text in the Bible pretty closely this morning in Mark chapter 7, and so you can find one underneath the chairs nearby. And if you don't own a Bible, please not only grab that and use it in this time, but please take it with you, and I would love for that to be your daily companion. Uh, Mark chapter 7, we're looking at the first 23 verses here. This is one of those Sundays where I feel like I have about three sermons. My notes are multiple pages longer than what I brought up here, and it's one of those texts as well where a number of you might come up later or send me a note saying, oh, I I wish you would have said this, or I would hope you would address this, or, or here's something else. And to those, I usually respond, that's a good point. I wish I thought of that. But what's interesting is at first reading, it may actually not sound all that relevant. Some of these things may sound like they're things that are just set 2,000 years ago and don't have much to do with us today. So uh, let's read this and then pray, and then we'll consider it together. Mark chapter 7, verse 23 verses. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to Jesus with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews did not eat unless they washed their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they don't eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites, as it's written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said... Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable, and he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him? Since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled. Thus he declared all foods clean, or thus cleansing all foods. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, Envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within 
and they defile a person. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word here, and we pray that we would receive this with minds that understand and hearts that are open and responsive. Uh, We pray that uh, you would uh, train our minds to think rightly about life, especially as it concerns the matters of this text with holding fast to your word, rightly understanding the place of tradition, and we pray that you would give us this cleansing that we need through Jesus. Amen. Okay, well, so there's some things in this text that we read that might seem a bit archaic or removed from us. So you see notes about uh, purity regulations, religious practices of washing things. This might be more relevant, or it is more relevant than we might think. So through this text, the key idea here, and you can see it repeated in different kinds of ways, is purity, or the other side of that defilement. So purity. You see the ideas of washing, cleansing, defiling here. It all has to do with being pure rather than being defiled. But this isn't just something uh, regarding uh, ancient purity ritual practices or religious practices. Every culture and every person seeks purity, even if they wouldn't use that word to describe it. We just have different ideas of what makes someone pure, what we call it rather than purity, and how we actually get this kind of purity. So a few examples here. The Jewish leaders, they're seeking purity in this text. They want to be pure Jews and keep the people of God pure and not contaminated by the non-Jewish world of the time. And so they developed all sorts of rules to protect and guard this kind of purity. A few other examples. What was Nazi Germany seeking? I don't know that they used the word purity much, but they, they were seeking purity. They wanted to be rid of those they viewed as impure, whether Jewish or disabled or otherwise. What were some parts of the um, so-called Christian fundamentalist movement of the 1900s? Well, they were seeking doctrinal and moral purity, and they were very strict and developed many extra rules. They disassociated from anyone who disagreed and started to isolate from the culture. They were protecting a certain version of purity. Some of you may remember the, uh, what's known as the purity movement of the 90s, reduced uh, viewing purity mainly as a sexual category and then creating all sorts of rituals and practices to protect it. What's our culture doing today? Well, there are versions of this at various points across the political and cultural spectrum. Many have decided that purity is in agreement with their particular view and those who disagree are not pure. And so there's a very also personal kind of purity that people seek. Some people still speak of the feeling of being impure or unclean or defiled from something they've done or something that's happened to them. They feel stained from their past. They feel like they're impure and need to be cleansed. So Mark 7 is not really that archaic. Uh, Jesus came into a particular culture with a particular view of purity, and he didn't fit into that cultural's agenda. Uh, And so they had a problem with him. And he, in this text, is responding to that by getting to the heart of 
the issue. And as he does it, he's giving us a vision of what true purity is and how to get it. And then he ends up cutting through every culture and to every heart in the way that he responds to that particular cultural issue. So in this text, the Jewish leaders say that Jesus' movement is not lining up with their view of purity, what it is and how to get it. And in response, Jesus addresses three problems, or really a big problem with three layers. And each problem or each layer is deeper than the one before. And in the end, the problems that Jesus has with them are the problems that he has with everyone, or the problem that everyone has. And so Jesus is bringing the bad news of our problem here, but he's also bringing the only solution. So as we look at it, look at this text, it may end up feeling a bit discouraging as we go. And so I'm reminded of something that one of my favorite authors uh, used to say. His name's Jack Miller, and he used to say something like, cheer up, you're worse than you think, (laughs) but you're also more loved in Christ than you could ever hope. And so cheer up. According to Jesus in this text, your problem is worse than you may have thought, and yet you're more loved in Christ than you could ever hope. So here's our outline, three problems, one solution. First problem is this, multiplying rules to secure our purity. Here's the context. So the Jewish leaders are gathering around Jesus. In verse 1, it says that these are Pharisees and some scribes. Uh, these legal leaders from Jerusalem. So these are high-level leaders from headquarters. They're probably an official delegation sent to investigate Jesus' ministry. We've seen them before in the Gospel of Mark in chapters 2 and 3. They're questioning and challenging Jesus. They end up coming to the conclusion already back in chapters 2 and 3 that they want to kill Jesus. And so now they need evidence to convict him. And so they're sent, they're gathering around Jesus, they're looking for evidence, they want to put him to death, and what do they find? This would be humorous if it wasn't so serious. Uh, Look at what they find so scandalous. They notice in verse 2 that some, not even all and not Jesus, but some of Jesus' disciples aren't washing their hands before mealtime. It is more serious in their, in their mind. Uh, notice verses 3 and 4, Mark explains a little bit of the Jewish practices of the time, which help us uh, and any kind of non-Jewish reader understand what was going on here. So Mark says, for the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups, and pots, and copper vessels, and dining couches. So really, this is about two things. This is about purity, and it's about tradition. So first, this is about purity. It's not mainly, though, about hygiene and table manners. This is about how even people with good hygiene can become impure, in a sense. They can become ceremonially, ritually unclean. This had some basis in the Old Testament, touching certain things like a corpse or carcass, would make someone ritually unclean. Priests would sometimes have to do ceremonially, ceremonial washings. So the problem here, though, is that the Jewish leaders over time, especially the 200 years before Jesus arrived, they started developing many different new rules. And they said that it's not just the priests that need to do this ritual washing. It's all the Jews all the time. And here's why in their mind. Because 
By the time of Jesus, the Greek world around them was just infiltrating everything. And they wanted to maintain their purity as the Jewish people. And so they started saying all sorts of things can make people unclean. And they developed rules in, in teaching how people can get clean. For example, Mark says that Jews would wash after being in the marketplace. Why? Because you might touch something that was already touched by a non-Jewish person or maybe someone with a skin disease that would make them unclean or a tax collector. And then there's very, various pots and surfaces uh, and even couches mentioned here because you can think of uncleanness kind of like a gas that can spread and land on and saturate certain kinds of materials. So this is about purity. But it's also about tradition. It's about creating traditions to protect purity. The leaders created hundreds of rules that aren't actually found in the Old Testament. They were developed in order to help people stay pure and actually to help people keep the Old Testament laws. So the Old Testament has some laws, and these extra rules were developed in order to keep people far away from violating any other law. So you can view the extra rules like a fence. So picture the, the law of God as a house. And then what the Jewish leaders would do is they'd put a fence around the house pretty far away to keep people away from breaking any of God's commands. And so the fence is the list of new rules that keep you from disobeying God. And so you have generations of leaders developing these rules, committed to keeping people pure and obedient, except that they developed really their own commands and traditions, and they started to teach them as though they had divine authority. Like if you, if you move inward from this fence, now you've, you've violated a command that's equal to God's, even though you didn't actually touch the house. And so this explains why they come to Jesus with their accusation in verse 5. You can see it with me. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? Nor, see, this is the tradition of the elders that's the problem. Why are they not conforming? to all these rules that we've developed to protect purity. Jesus is strong in his response, um, understandably so, given that he, he's already understanding that these people want him dead, right? So this isn't just kind of out of nowhere. It's not just a neutral question they're just curious about. He knows they're trying to get him. And so he says they're hypocrites. He quotes the prophet Isaiah against them. He says they're teaching their commands as if they're God's commands. This is verses 6 and 7. He said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it's written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. Right? This is empty. Teaching the doctrines, or teaching as doctrines, the commandments of men. So they're teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So they're, we could say, adding to God's law. All their purity rules and traditions, they make people obey them as if it's equal to obeying God's own law. They require people to obey their commands as if they're God's commands. And this isn't just a problem for them back then. This is the tendency of uh, every human culture, even if it's not going to be a one-to-one -one correlation of making things seem like they're obedience to God, because many people don't believe in God, but there's similarities and tendencies across cultures. We define something as pure, and then we develop rules and regulations in order to protect it. 
and we start imposing these rules on others. So let's think for a few moments about this. Uh, but, but first, here's what I'm not saying. Not saying, because Jesus is not saying, that all traditions and rules are bad. God Himself gave rules and traditions. He calls us to keep them for our good. And you can develop your own rules and traditions for your good. Here's where traditions can go bad. They go bad when we make them equal to God's Word. They go bad when we tighten our grip around them firmly, just as firmly as we would around God's Word. They go bad when we make people feel immoral for not conforming to them. They go bad when we measure people's spirituality according to the standard of our own rules and traditions. They go bad when we start thinking that our way is the right way and there's no other way. And by our way, I don't mean God's way. Um, I mean like the way that you literally make up. So let's think about how this plays out in a few areas of life, in homes, in churches, and in cultures. So first in our homes, you can develop family traditions and have house rules. You can have a way that you all like your family to do things, and that can be great. But this goes bad when you start feeling like you and your family are better than everyone else in light of those things. Right? It can go bad when you, you as a parent don't teach your kids the difference between your rules and God's rules. So in their mind, it's all just blurred together. They're getting the Bible, they're getting commands, they're getting you, and it's just a blur. And you don't help them distinguish, here's what God's Word says, and you don't distinguish that from, here's what I'm saying, and I'm, you know, your authority right now, but this is a rule that we've made up, we think is wise for now, and we're calling you to obey. There's a difference. It can go bad when you look down on others who don't have traditions like your family. Or I think of husbands and fathers in particular as the leaders of your marriages and homes. This doesn't mean, so God calls your, your wife and your children to follow your lead, but it doesn't mean that you can be like the Pharisees here and just multiply commands and rules and expect them to conform to all of this in an unreasonable way. I mean, there's a real danger in someone in leadership in a home or an institution or a church who multiplies commands and says, well, because there's one command that says, follow my lead, it means I can make up these 30 commands and expect you to obey me. Because obeying me now is obeying God, because God says obey me, so do what I say. I mean, that's a gross misunderstanding um, and misapplication of this. And so there's a danger here. Here's how about churches? Churches will always find ways to develop doing things. They'll have preferences. They'll have traditions that reflect the culture of the members. And that can be a great thing, can be helpful, can be good. It's inevitable. It goes bad, though, when we feel like our unique styles of doing things make us better than other churches. It can go bad when we foreground our traditions and we background the things that are explicit in God's Word. It can go bad when we love our unique distinctives more than we love the unity that we have in God's Word, together or even with other churches. Tradition can go bad when the things we care most about emotionally 
aren't actually found in the Bible, but through history or our own church's history. It goes bad when guests over time can feel like to be included in this church isn't really based on following Jesus, but is based on conforming to the traditions that they all like. Here's a few examples of how this happens, and right, this is where it'd be great to just have three hours, have an open discussion about this kind of thing. So let's talk about this, talk about it, small groups, talk about it in life, a lot of implications for life here. A few examples, um, maybe somewhat obvious, but <clears throat> they're just historically prominent ones. Dancing. Uh, the Bible does command us to pursue sexual integrity, but in order to protect that, right, in order to protect the house, there's a fence that was put up, and that fence was this rule that said dancing isn't allowed. And over time, people can start to feel like any form of dancing itself is immoral. Another example would be alcohol. Right? Drinking alcohol, according to the Bible, is not sinful. It's sometimes even celebrated as a gift and as a symbol of joy. But drunkenness is clearly a sin. But in order to protect people from getting drunk, some had created a rule that says no one should drink alcohol at all. And over time, subcultures can develop and start to think that alcohol itself is sinful. And you can find people that try to make a case that when the Bible talks about alcohol, it's not actually alcohol, it's something else. I mean, they just started with this lens that said it's got to be wrong, so the Bible couldn't say that it's okay to to drink. Now, again, to be clear, drunkenness is a sin. If you are getting drunk, you need to repent and not do that. But drinking alcohol itself is not in itself sinful. Now, some of us have history and so and backgrounds that lead our consciences to um, be at a place where for you personally it wouldn't be wise to drink or you would be sinning against your conscience, and so you need to honor that, and it would be sin for you to drink alcohol against your conscience. We should respect one another and honor one another in these ways, but the broader point is that when a tradition develops and ends up calling something a sin that God doesn't call a sin. Here's another example with music. Some church traditions have banned the use of drums. They did this because they thought that drums can have a sensual rhythm, and in order to not be sexually engaged, the whole church then can start thinking over time that drums themselves are sinful, like the, listening to the rhythm itself can be, I mean, this is real stuff that really happens, I mean, still today in America, right? Um, this means that we always have to, we, you and me, myself included, have to remain very flexible where God has not spoken clearly about church practices. Some things we do are clearly commanded in the Bible, gathering together, reading Scripture when we gather, praying when we gather, the preaching of God's Word, encouraging one another, celebrating the Lord's Supper. There's Bible verses for this stuff. Um, but the way in which we do it, the time of day that we do it when we gather, the order in which we do it, how long the Scripture readings are or the prayers are, how many songs we do or how long the sermons should be. Right? There's no Bible verses for that stuff. Now, there can be wisdom, and we want to think through that. It doesn't mean it's totally arbitrary, right? But there's a measure of flexibility we have. There's a difference between saying you should read Scripture and 
it's really wise to read more than one verse together, right? Um, so there, there's a dis- difference between us thinking through what we maybe wise in our culture. So here's what's fascinating too. Many church traditions develop. At the beginning, they're innovations, right? It's like breaking from a tradition. And it's like, we should do this. This would really be great. But then just fast forward 10 or 20 years or 100 years, and it's hardened into a tradition that someone else wants to now innovate from. And then it sounds fresh. And then it becomes hardened into a tradition. So we just always need to be aware of this hold biblically clear things in a closed fist and these other things in an open hand. I want you to know as well, just for me personally, as um, a pastor and someone who preaches and teaches God's Word, um, I have an intentional restraint in my preaching. So some of you might wonder, how come he doesn't give more application? How come he doesn't give 10 steps to apply this text and spell it out? Just tell me what to do specifically. Um, Why won't you tell me who to vote for? Why won't you say who to vote for? Um, And I I do give implications and applications, and I want to grow in being able to do that wisely and faithfully and helpfully. I think concrete implications can be helpful, but I'm intentionally restrained because I do not want to functionally add to God's Word for you. Um, The Bible gives us, if it gives us a principle or a general command, then that's what we have right? And there may be a number of ways that's going to look in a lot of different lives. And if I just said, here's how it's going to look for us, that's really dangerous um, over time. And so we have to be restrained in making rules. So in fact, there's, there may be times too, I know right now culturally, people can say, if a pastor doesn't say this or this about this cultural political issue, he lacks conviction. Just so you know, my restraint is because of a conviction to not make you do things that God hasn't spoken to. Now, I want to be helpful, and again, I can grow in this, um, but there, there must be an intentional restraint when speaking about these things. And by the way, even what I say from this platform is going to be different than what you'll hear from me in a personal conversation. I've had plenty of political conversations with many of you, and you'll hear me say things about my personal opinion that I won't say from up here because it comes across differently and can be taken differently and can establish a tradition differently. Does that make sense? Okay. Hey, thank you. By the way, feel free to speak anytime. I know some of you are like, I wanted to say amen there. I'm like, go for it. Maybe if one starts like the 50 of you that want to will, go for it. All right, one more area of life before we move on here. Um, We've seen how this can look in the family and the church, but our broader culture also multiplies rules to protect purity. This isn't just kind of a a religious or Christian thing. Um, Our secular culture doesn't talk about purity, doesn't talk about adding rules to protect purity, but that's what's happening. Our culture is very concerned right now about certain versions of purity, and they develop rules and have symbols to protect it. So the Jewish leaders here developed purity regulations based upon what they cared about. So look at what a culture cares about, and you're going to find some purity regulations put in place to protect it. Traditions that they had in the first century are signaled to their pagan context that they're different, they're pure, they're distinctly Jewish, and the leaders condemned Jesus because he wasn't getting in line. Today, our culture has its own set of deep values, and people signal that they're part of this new purity culture in a number of ways. They offer training in workplaces. They put various flags up to match an identity or a cause. They put a creed in their yard that states their 
values, or they put a symbol on their social media profile to signal to the world, I'm part of the new purity. And this purity culture may sound secular, but it actually has a lot of similarities with uh, religious practices. It has its own form of church discipline and excommunication, right? We call it cancel culture. When someone doesn't conform to new purity regulations, they're silenced. But the standard isn't God's word, it's public opinion. The jury is the social media mob, and it often lacks grace and doesn't offer a path to restoration. So, this is an issue across human cultures, right? The point is that what Jesus is pressing against here is not just an ancient problem. It's a problem with us. So, that's the first problem. I think we took We'll take the most time with that when we have to. Okay, so the second problem is that we use traditions to avoid God's Word. So we don't just kind of add to God's Word, multiplying traditions to protect our purity. We also can use traditions in order to avoid God's Word. We make up rules to avoid loving God and others. So here's what Jesus emphasizes next in verse 9. He said to them, I don't quite know his tone here, but you can, you can almost get a sense of this. You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. So notice, this is not now just adding traditions to God's Word. They're violating and voiding God's Word with their traditions. So in other words, Jesus is catching them. He's seeing through what so many people did not see. And he gives one example, and then he says, I have plenty more, just giving one, and it's an example called Corbin. So he reminds them first of what God's Word actually says. So let's think through this example, verse 10. Moses said, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. So it's the command of God. I mean, Ten Commandments. Honor your father and mother. Honor your parents. It's a, a fairly clear implication of that is to care for them when they need it. But the leaders developed a new rule that sounded spiritual, but they developed this and used it in order to avoid actually obeying that clear command. And this is verse 11. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the Word of God, by your tradition that you've handed down. So Corbin's a word that means given to God. So they developed this tradition where you could designate something of yours, something financial, property, as Corbin, and it was designated as a gift to God. And it seems like you could even do this with property that you might still use, but it's, you know, given to God. So let's say someone has property that they can use to support their parents. And instead of that, though, they declare it as Corbin gift for God. And now when their parents fall into need, they can say to their parents, I'm sorry, I wish I could help, but this is already designated for God. I can't can't use it. I can't go against my oath. And the leaders, Jesus is saying, would say, they'd say, yeah, sorry, that's an oath. You can't break your oath. Um, Your son or daughter can't help. And kind of end of story. So they have a tradition that sounds spiritual, but it's actually used to break God's word. So, as a side note, here's a very specific implication. Honoring your parents is a really big deal in the Bible. And this applies to those of you who are in your parents' home, but it also applies to all of us who have living parents. 
Um, this is not just uh, an Old Testament thing. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Timothy 5 that if someone claims to be a Christian but does not take care of his parents, he is worse than an unbeliever. It's really serious. And so, in our culture where we have nuclear family with mobility moving around, we can become relationally and physically distanced from parents in ways that were different in the first culture and kind of not feel the weight of this, but it's a really serious deal. So, I'm so thankful for so many of you, as I, as I was thinking about this, so many of you have given me examples of what it looks like to care for your aging parents well. Like, you've been teaching me how to do this in coming days by how well you sacrifice to care for your aging parents. And so, well done. Um, in a culture that says once you become unproductive, you lose your value, uh, Christians that take this seriously will stand out uh, because God loves your aging parents and he's put you in their life to care for them. Uh, others of us perhaps may need to hear this. I've heard many stories of how adult children uh, neglect their parents uh, in shameful ways and they claim to be Christians. So, Jesus addresses that one example, but his point is broader than this, right? So, that's just an example that he's using. He says in verse 13, many such things you do. So, the broader problem is, again, back to, back to the main issue here, using traditions to avoid honoring God and loving others. We can create traditions that even sound spiritual, like, hey, this… I've designated this a gift of God. I'm being generous. I'm sorry I can't out my parents. I'm being spiritual, right? We can develop things that sound really spiritual, sound even obedient to God. You could attach it somewhere close to a Bible verse, and you're actually using it to disobey other commands. Now, there's a number of ways in which we can tend to do this today. A few examples. A lot of people in our culture... Um, who are following Jesus uh, or looking to or claiming to don't want to follow Jesus in the realm of sexual integrity, right? That's obviously a big issue in our culture. They want to sleep with someone before marriage or feel okay lusting on the internet, and so they'll say, I prayed about it, and I sense that it's okay for me, um, or I have a peace about it. Now, even here, like some of us are think there's probably a mix in this room. Some of us think like that sounds ludicrous because you see through it like Jesus does maybe. Others think, oh, that's so sad and you know someone who's stuck in thinking that. Others of you might actually be feeling like I'm a bit offended. I think that way, right? So I just want to just acknowledge the room right now um, that uh, this is worth thinking about and talking about together because some of these things you got to think through. Like, okay, well, why, why is that a problem? And the problem is because if you pray about it, no matter what your subjective sense feels, if the Holy Spirit is communicating to you, He's not going to contradict what He's communicated on the pages of the Bible, right? So, we've just got to think that through. Um, he won't give you a… you might get a piece about it, but that might be because your conscience has been kind of seared because you haven't been listening to Him in the past, and that's why it feels um, peaceful at these things. Another example is someone may no longer want to be married, but they don't have biblical grounds for divorce. They just don't like their spouse anymore. And they say, God wouldn't want me to be unhappy. So, they make, take, make a spiritually sounding principle and that God wants us to be happy, and they take it to mean that God would approve 
whatever would make me happy. So again, a spiritually sounding principle, but is, is hitting, rubbing up against the Bible, God himself. Or someone no longer engages with a local church community, and it's because of some other good thing, like they want to travel and explore creation, and they get close to God that way. Or they want to spend more time with family or grandkids. Or their kids are in sports, and it's really good to develop this context for kids in sports. And so they take a good thing, traveling, family, sports, and they use that as an opportunity to actually reject the clear command of the Bible, which is Hebrews 10, which says, don't forsake meeting together, but keep gathering and encourage one another day after day. Right? There's, there's a biblical mandate to be a Christian engaged in a healthy local church. So do you see how we can potentially do this all the time? Right? It's a reason why we need to be immersed in the Bible to know what it actually says um, as well. And this, to this kind of thinking, Jesus says in verse 10, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition, right? Your tradition being whatever new rule or pattern of life, no matter how spiritual it sounds, that you use to actually avoid um, obeying God. So that's the second problem. So first problem, multiplying rules to protect purity. Second problem is pretending to sound pure when you actually want to disobey God. And now we move to the deepest problem. It's the third one, and it's living with a heart that defiles or makes you impure. Our real problem, according to Jesus, is that impurity flows from within us. So Jesus turns away from the leaders now, and he's addressing everybody. But he's not really changing the subject. He says, it's not external things that make us impure. It's what comes out of our own hearts. So that's verse 15. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. So he explains next that everything goes into your body, goes out again. Nothing's, it's not getting to your heart. It's not touching the core of who you are. And so it's not the real problem. What is the real problem? Well, it's the heart and what comes out of it. And then he gives a list in verses 20 to 23. He says the thoughts we have, the words we speak, the things we do, they all flow from our hearts. Like the heart, as Proverbs says, is the spring of life. Everything we do comes from the core of who we are, our deepest motivations and desires. That's why Eric mentioned earlier, Augustine talked about uh, the need to rightly order loves because the human problem is disordered loves. It's an issue of our loves in our hearts, and everything flows from the ordering of our loves. So, here's the list that Jesus gives to show the real problem in the world is the heart. For verses 21 and 22, for from within, out of the heart of man come, I think he says 13 things here, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. So we can't walk through every one of these in detail, um, but we do need to slow down enough just to hear the point of what he's saying, because in every culture, some of these will sound more obvious or less obvious as a problem. Jesus lists these 13, and his point is that here's, again, not, not exhaustive, but here's examples of the kinds of things 
that come from the heart. And if these are in your life, then they're not there as just a result of your education or your parenting or your context. They're, they're ultimately there because they come from your heart. So, the first thing he says are evil thoughts. So, what you think, according to Jesus, is not morally neutral. You can't say, it's fine to think it, just don't say it or do it. Evil thoughts even come from the heart. Then he says sexual morality. Uh, the biblical vision of sexuality is positive. God created sex to be enjoyed in the context of marriage, which Jesus affirms is between one man and one woman. And God created all sexuality, all, or all sexual activity to be enjoyed in the context of that marriage of a man and a woman. Anything outside of that marriage context is viewed as sexual immorality. The Greek word Jesus uses here is porneia. Anytime we come across this, I note that for you because it's a really important one. The New, one New Testament scholar summarized that the word was used to refer to any sexual practice outside of marriage between a man and a woman that's prohibited by the Torah or law. So that would have included, in Jesus's context there, prostitution, homosexual practice, or any sexual activity before or outside of marriage. So some people, you know, say that Jesus never talked about those things, never talked about homosexuality, for instance, but he did, and he did it by using this word, because that's the word in that context that would refer to these things. This is radical in our culture, right? Nearly everything is permitted now. Valentine's Day is tomorrow. saw a news headline where one um, school, one uh, college is hosting a sex week, and the purpose is to inform and celebrate all sorts of uh, sexual practices and activities. And I'm guessing that's not targeted at the half a dozen people that might be married on campus, right? So this is, in other words, it's targeted uh, at everything that Jesus just said in this list comes from a heart and therefore defiles. Jesus also notes murder directly. So in our culture, we've had a history of excusing this in different ways. Uh, for a long time, many in our nation were not held accountable for mistreatment and murder of slaves. Today, our laws allow for the lives of the most vulnerable to be taken in the womb. He notes slander seems to be a growing issue as social media grows. We say things online that we'd never say to people's face, and slanderous reports get liked and shared and retweeted, and you know, things that are said to shame someone that aren't true, and then even when the retraction comes out later, the damage is done, there's no cleaning up, right? Reputations are ruined. He includes pride here. So in other words, which one of us by the end of the list is feeling good about themselves, <laughs> right? His point is, Jesus came to a world that's defiled. Everyone's impure. And no amount of rule-keeping and traditions will make you pure or keep you pure. He isn't even being exhaustive here. Now, we have to remember, God made humanity in his own image good. But when sin entered the world, it changed the deal. And everyone's now born with a heart that inclines away from God, that has disordered loves, that then uh, springs forth all these things that defile us, which means that Jesus actually has a message for the religious and the irreligious. To the religious, he says, rule-keeping, rule-creating will not make you pure. Your problem is inside of you. To the irreligious, he says, getting rid of rules and following your heart won't make you pure. Right? Following your heart is a great betrayal 
Because it will betray you. It will lead you astray. He says our heart is the problem. Now, Jesus doesn't say the good news here, but let's wrap up with it because there is good news here. The good news is not so much what Jesus says directly here, but the good news is standing in front of them all. The good news is the fact that Jesus is here. The fact that he's there addressing this problem is the good news because he came to wake people up to the problem so they would see that he is the solution and the only solution to their problem. So Jesus did not speak this text from heaven just condemning everyone. He didn't send down a hopeless message that just said, hey folks, your hearts are defiled. No, he came for us. And he came for us knowing what our hearts were like. He didn't just come and then the more he got to know people, the more he's like, what is going on around here, right? No, he, he knows the heart. I mean, from Genesis 6, it said that every thought of every man is wicked all the time. I mean, like, the total depravity is a doctrine from the beginning of the Bible to the end, and the good news of the gospel is that Jesus came into this world to rescue us, to make us pure. And so he sees us, he loves us deeply. Throughout human history, nothing has worked to solve our problem. Rules can't give you a new heart. Religion hasn't given people a new heart on its own. Being a very serious, being very serious about being very good doesn't actually solve the problem either. Either that's the people that were attacking Jesus here. They're very serious people. Following your hearts will not give you a new heart. Political revolution won't solve the problem of the heart. Only Jesus can. And so the night before he died, he said that he was bringing what he referred to as the new covenant, which is a promise from the prophets, a promise that sprung out of a very hopeless history of Israel, failing to be pure. And the promise, many things are included. Here's two things that were included, cleansing and new hearts. That's what Jesus came to bring. On the cross, he suffered and bore the weight of eternal wrath for all of the things that defile us. And he took it all upon him, plunged it into the grave, came up again, and then he pours out his spirit so that any who will have him cleansed, fully, finally, free, forever. And he gives a new heart to begin to renew us. One day, finally and fully renewed, right now, imperfectly, but truly being renewed inside out. And so, cheer up. (laughs) You're worse than you think. But you are more loved than you could ever hope in Jesus. And anyone can have this. So if you are feeling you're defiled, you need cleansing, you can go right now in your heart to Jesus and ask him for it. He'll give it and give you a new heart. And for all of us, let's not think that our traditions are that wonderful. Only Jesus is. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word here and your work by the Spirit among us. You see every one of our hearts. You know it fully. You know every one of our hearts better than any one of us knows ourselves. And we know that your picture of what's going on in each of our hearts is way worse than the picture we are even aware of. And when we consider your heart, we see not only a purity, but a love. So we thank you for loving us deeply. And we pray that by the Spirit's renewing power, you would cause us to receive and rest in this cleansing, and you'd renew us day by day. 
In Jesus' name, amen.